The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Lois Lane and Clark Kent, am I right? The two most famous reporters in America. Um, Mr. Fences, I, I know we haven't met. I, I have the strangest feeling we have. Well, I've been on the news a lot recently. Yeah, I read your article on trade barriers. You seemed rather adamant. Well, unfair trade barriers are the bane of U.S. business overseas. And if negotiations fail, I believe that we should go to war. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December 15th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. We didn't expect to have him back quite this soon, but after hearing about his alarming or perhaps just disheartening experience in Toronto a couple of weeks ago on December 5th, I thought we should sound the alert and share with our listeners some of his observations that might help explain why our country seems to be heading in the wrong direction in a number of ways. Back with us today for another round is Salim Mansour. Hello, Salim. Hi. Great to have you back. Salim, of course, is Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science, and we will get underway with our conversation as soon as we remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Now, Salim, a couple weeks ago, you called me up after a visit to Toronto where you gave a speech, I understand. Was it, a, was it an official speech or, or, a, or a presentation of some sort? And you were a little upset by what you saw there. Tell us the story. Yeah. No, I wasn't upset. I, I, I found it, uh, uh, on reflection, a, a very interesting engagement. And uh, that's what I, was sharing, maybe? what I was sharing with you. Yeah. It, 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 the occasion was an invitation I, uh, by this uh, club in Toronto, uh, which we might, for our purpose, call them informally. It's a Bay Street financiers, bankers, actuaries, people who work out of the financial district in Toronto, which is the finance capital of Canada. There's a nice group of people, uh, high-powered people in their own uh, ways. And some got to know me over time, going back a few years. And so on a few occasions, they've invited me to come and speak to them over a dinner. Mm -hmm. And we have then uh, question and answer, follow-up, comments, you know, quite spirited discussion if the subject is of a spirited nature. And uh, the last two occasions, the subject was of a very spirited nature because it was about the American election. Well, you can't get more spirited than that. <laughs> exactly. I was invited by them to come and sh- uh, talk about and discuss with them what would be the outcome of the election. That was in early September, if I recall correctly. And then I was invited back again last week. September, it was about what would be the outcome and in the room full of people, about 25, 30 people with some American, you know, with, do, with 
I, I suppose, dual citizenship who moved into Canada, uh, talking about Clinton and uh, Hillary and, and Trump. And my view, as we have discussed on your show on many occasions, that I had called out for Trump way back going to his uh, the primary when he when he stepped out. That's what I shared with them then, and I was basically laughed out of the court, you know, that I... <laughs> I was ridiculed and uh, that I had no clue and understanding of what was happening. They actually ridiculed you? Like, well, what, yes, because uh, especially, the, especially the Americans. And, you know, in September, if you go back now, we are in December, if you go back into September, Hillary was leading Trump in double digit, especially in all the key battleground states. And my argument was that all these numbers will all slowly evaporate as we draw closer to the election and the race will tighten. And I gave my argument of why I thought that Trump is going to win, because the key point then, just to refresh our memory, was that no sitting president has got a third term except for Reagan in the post-1945 period. And given all the metrics of the Obama administration, that he was not going to get a third term which is what turned out, right, in the November 8 election. So they they were gracious enough they invited me back because they wanted to acknowledge that I had been right and they had been wrong. Well, that's pretty good. Yes, yeah. it was. I mean, after all, they're all, they're all professionals and gentlemen, mm-hmm. and, you know, we are all, you know, we, we have spirited discussion, but once it's over, we hang our gloves and we shake hands and have dinner and, you know, drink to each other. So that was nice. But getting into the discussion with these gentlemen... There was, again, that absolute taunting and ridiculing Trump. He may have won the presidency, he's the president-elect, but he's not a fitting man, you know, and everything is wrong about him. He's a goof and a buffoon. I responded at one moment, if he's a buffoon, I would like to be a buffoon, then I might be also sitting in the White House. (laughs) 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 Buffoons can make it. So that was the back and forth. But it struck me what I was sharing with you, uh, Bob, in the conversation with them, and I put it on the table, and I thought about it more afterward as I drove back to London. I said to them, to all these high-powered people, that, look, you all are looking at politics from your own narrow lens and perspective, which is what we all do. And so your experience sitting in Bay Street is to look at the issues from the perspective of finance and economics and policy. And that's what you guys are all asking me. What is his policy? How is he going to deal with deficit? What is the downside of his position on free trade? You know, And your assessment, that is the assessment of the room, is all of that is on the negative. And I pointed out to them that, no, politics is not simply through that lens because there are other perspectives at play. And in the case of Trump, what was at play was both the theatrics of politics at play, which is how he demolished his uh, rivals in the Republican primary. And then there was the appeal to American patriotism, American nationalism, in a sense that has not happened, at least in my lifetime. Or we might go back to Donald Reagan, but it was not so clearly articulated as it was articulated. And I said to them, 
And that's what I was reflecting, that the two issues that have become, in a sense, taboo in Western politics, including Canada, Western Europe, European politics, and in America, among the elites and among the media commentators and the mainstream media, has become taboo and is derided, is the idea of nationalism one. And very few people talk about politics in terms of theater, the drama, the excitement, and how people are aroused and mobilized. And those are not sufficiently paid attention to in understanding what happened, in this case, the American politics, which was preceded by Brexit. And as we are looking down, we might anticipate, because we are heading into 2017, and there are a number of very key elections coming up in Western Europe. The French presidential election is coming up in May, June of 2017. The Dutch are going into their election. The Italians just had their referendum in which uh, the sitting prime minister lost the referendum, Renzi. And, and of course, the German election is coming up also. So what is mobilizing these issues over there is a breakdown of the consensus that had been built up over maybe the past half century or more since 1945, that you don't speak about nationalism, that nationalism is a negative concept, that nationalism has brought us a lot of woe, a lot of trouble, particularly the Europeans, given the history of nationalism in the 20th century and the whole European program uh, since 1945 has been to get rid of nationalism and built up the European architecture, the European state. Uh, EU. And so that's what struck me is where the elitists, and of course the Bay Street people are part of our elite, the university professors, the mainstream media, and Donald Trump's election was a heavy pushback, if not a total rebuttal of that elite view of politics. You know, I think it was Gerald Ford who said that Ronald Reagan won the way he did because he affiliated himself with the common man. He identified himself with the common man, even though he was not a common man himself. And I, we see that in Trump as well. If you look at his speeches, he affiliated himself with the Rust Belt, common um, orange shirt working class people. Hard hats. The hard hats, yes. And even though he was a, a billionaire himself, uh, Ronald Reagan was a communicator, Donald Trump yes. is a communicator. Yes. Is there something to be said for, I don't know, um, when, you're, when you're talking to this um, group of elites, as you call them, they have no idea. They may be very intelligent men. They may be in the know when it comes to their own personal uh, lens, as you say. But you take the bigger picture, the general picture, and you see that since the common man was given the vote, you have to look at what the common man is interested in, not the bankers of Wall Street and, and, and of Bay Street. I think there's a lot of truth in that, uh, Robert. The common man and democratic politics is about the common man, demos, the people, right? Of course, within a, a structured system, nation state, constitution, and so in the American situation, it is democracy, but it is republican democracy uh, that is arranged within the constitution. So from the point of view, and I think all of us have that sensibility, we share that perspective, that we don't simply talk about freedom or liberty. We talk about ordered liberty in the Burkean sense. There is an order, and then 
there's liberty. And, you know, in the absence of order, there is chaos, there's True. anarchy. But the moment we focus on liberty, the moment we focus on freedom and which is the common man, yes, the uh, intellectuals lose the perspective because how do you connect with the common man becomes the issue. You know, we're all familiar around this table um, most recently because we were discussing British prime ministers of the uh, mid-19th century, Gladstone and um, Disraeli. It was Gladstone who actually gave the vote to the common man. It was no longer just the gentry and the elites who could vote. And when the common man had the vote, what did Gladstone do? He, he, he repealed the corn laws, if I'm not mistaken. You, you can speak to this much more because as a political scientist. You, you obviously know the history of this better than I, but he repealed the corn laws and he gave the common man cheap bread well, both. I mean, both. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you go, we're going back to 19th century, the Victorian age, the two giants, I mean, uh, one of the uh, authors have talked about uh, or, or, or written the biographies of these two men as the lion and the unicorn, you know, and they fought and they really fought. And if they, if television had been there, then these would have been great dramas we would have been say, seeing the two men sitting across from each other. Their lives uh, were one in which as I recall, when when Disraeli died in 1881 or something like that, Gladstone felt that he had lost his opponent, Foil. the great boxer, you yes, know, yes. Uh, with whom they had basically for half a century dominated British politics. It is both. I mean, um, uh, Disraeli uh, w- was truly the common man. He was of Jewish background. His grandfather had immigrated from Italy, if I remembered. The family had moved from Spain to Italy and then moved to England. And it was Disraeli's father who fell out with his uh, Jewish community in London and converted to Anglicism, high Anglicism, which allowed then Disraeli, that's Benjamin Disraeli, to grow up as a Christian and be eligible to go into politics. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to go into politics, leave alone becoming a prime minister. But the fact that his name was Disraeli always was there. So he was truly the common man, much more so than Gladstone. Gladstone was the son of a very wealthy businessman, a merchant from Liverpool, and his money came from slave trade. <laughs> mm-hmm. But do you see that, the, the parallels between somebody like a Gladstone, William Gladstone and uh, a Donald Trump? Gladstone and Disraeli, both of them outstanding prime ministers, both of them eminent chancellors of the Exchequer, and those facts alone are hugely impressive. But the story of these two men is much more than that. Gladstone and Disraeli dominated political life in the Victorian age and became inseparable in the public mind. Over a period of 40 years, they turned Britain upside down. They improved the lives of millions of people and permanently changed the way in which the country was ruled. Disraeli and Gladstone are the two great figures of the 19th century. They are great because they changed the weather. Uh, Politics change because of both of them. These two men invented modern politics by going head-to-head out on the stump, making a pitch for votes. And if we think that politics is presidential now, the root of presidential politics goes back to Gladstone and Disraeli. But this isn't simply a story about two great men. 
It's a story about two great men who loathed each other with a passion. They really, really detested each other. They totally disapproved of each other's way of thinking about politics, and they were intense rivals in every way. They hated each other. It was a brown, rare relationship. Gladstone thought Disraeli was a charlatan, and Disraeli thought Gladstone was mad. Gladstone had been born in Liverpool in 1809. His father was a very wealthy businessman who had made some of his money from the slave trade. And William turned out to be a very confident, but a very, very serious young man. Catapulted into Parliament at the tender age of 22, young Gladstone proceeded to enjoy a truly phenomenal rise. Almost unbelievably, from a modern point of view, his maiden speech was an impassioned defence of the long-discredited slave trade. Odd as that seems to us, the speech went down a storm, marking him out as a man to watch. Disraeli was born in 1804, five years earlier than Gladstone. But any advantage that might have given him was erased by the unfortunate consequences of his ethnic identity. He was proud of his Jewish antecedents and he never forgot it. Uh, but in Victorian England, he actually was subjected to what nowadays would be regarded as a quite impermissible and unforgivable anti-Semitism. Not only was he Jewish, but his Jewishness was assaulted in a way nobody would dream of doing now, and were they to do so, would certainly be prosecuted. When he went on one of his um, election, early elections at the hustings, they stuck a piece of pork on a stick and pushed it under his nose and said, here's a piece of pork for the Jew. Disraeli's career in the House of Commons got off to a truly terrible start in December 1837 when he made his famously dreadful parliamentary debut. His maiden speech was an absolute disaster. He didn't catch the mood of the House of Commons, the tone of it at all. He delivered a sort of terrifically theatrical oration and people booed and jeered. Most young politicians are arrogant, but few could have gone quite so over the top when making the maiden speech. He, he, it was elaborate in manner, apparently grandiloquent, laying about him as if he was an elder statesman on the moment of his arrival. And people fell about laughing. He wasn't just booed or disagreed with. People thought the whole thing was hilarious. Clearly, a lot of politics is theater. And I was wondering if perhaps a lot of the people that you were speaking to in your, at your event in Toronto, uh, Salim, were taking the theatre too seriously, too literally? Is that part of the problem, or not recognizing that theatre no, is part of, the, uh, part of the game? Communicate, communication? I, I imagine it's, it's the reverse. They would, oh. would, would, would look at the idea of politics as theatre as something derisive something negative. I mean, if, if they really thought about it, I don't think oh, they I think about you it, you know, because yeah. they're so focused. I mean, I, I think professional class, doctors, engineers, 
financiers and these are all base street finance people, bankers and lawyers, they focus very narrowly on their own issue. Lawyers may be a little more open to theater, but then those are lawyers who are who argue the case in the court as opposed to lawyers who do corporate law, Where they finance law. Where they have to use a lot of theater themselves. That's right. right? They are, so there is a, there's a whole different, again, breakdown over there. But I think that idea doesn't hit them. And when I mentioned that, I don't think they fully absorbed and understood. Because for them, everything was stacked up in this election that has happened. It was stacked up in, in the favor of Hillary as opposed to Trump, because Trump was seen as a buffoon. Where, why did they see Trump as buffoon? At one point, I, I mentioned that to him. I, I, I recall for them that famous dinner that happens, Robert, if you recall, every four years in New York, the Al Smith dinner. Mm-hmm. This is in honor of the governor, the first Catholic governor of New York who ran for the presidency, goes back to, I think, the 1920s. And there is this dinner that takes place every four years that coincides with the presidential election. And the cardinal sits in between the two candidates, the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate. And on this occasion, it was Hillary and, and Trump and the good cardinal set. And when, when Trump got up to speak, he pointed his finger at the audience of the people attending the dinner. And these are all high-powered people in New York, the who's who of New York sitting there. And he pointed that finger. He said, you Chuck Schumer and you so-and-so and so-and-so. All of you, I know, remember you were running for money to me? Mm-hmm. And it struck me, and I pointed this out, that there was not a word of negativity or calling Trump a buffoon before he put his hat in the ring. Then everything flipped over. Now he was a guy who was in the ring, and everything was okay to smear him. And so the media created the smear about him, and people swallowed it. So what I'm suggesting to you is that most of these high-powered people, they just took the media information, trusting the media, the high-powered media, including the Canadian media, CBC and, and Globe and National Post, and just simply took that as a given, not to explore that. And what you and I are doing that, the theater is part of the drama of democratic politics. And why Trump, and you point out Reagan, why they were so successful and unexpectedly successful because they had the magic of connecting with the demos, the people in a manner that their opponents did not, and which was not a factor in the calculation of all these people who put their money on Hillary. So these Toronto elites were so bogged down by policy that they failed to see what was attractive to the common man. Oh, how? Yes, exactly. Or how could the common man, how could the electorate dare to think what they had already spoken about, that is, the, that is the economists and the financiers and others, the Wall Street, the Bay Street, had already said, you know, that this is the economy, this is the free trade, these are the policies, and anything away from this will be detrimental to the economy, and that you, common man, will suffer. And yet the common man didn't care about it. Mm-hmm. The common man voted for Trump. Common man voted for Reagan. Common man voted for the Brexit. Despite all the noise that the Remain crowd made, including the Prime Minister, David Cameron, and just and the Labour Party and everybody else in England, that Brexit would mean an economic disaster for British economy. And then knowing that well ahead in time, the common man said, we don't care. We want our laws to be made in our country. So this speaks to nationalism then, doesn't it? 
precisely. There is the drama of who we are, how we relate to the world, what are we proud about, what is our heritage. And Trump connected with that, Reagan connected with that, the Brexit people connected with that. And that's what is, I think, raging in European politics right now. And when you look at the current issue of uh, the Economist, the prestigious elite magazine, which all the uh, people in Wall Street and Bay Street have on their table, you see the current issue. It has the, the cover called the new nationalism with Trump and Putin, Nigel Farage, all dressed up as demagogue beating the drum of new nationalism and this new nationalism, which is to be seen with not only suspicion, but is derisive because the experience of nationalism in the last century for the West has been a horror to European world wars. Uh, and of course, since then, the equation of nationalism immediately flips on the switch now that this is white nationalism, this is racism, this is bigotry, this is against the colored people, this is all of that, which then leads to, you know, that image that is already there in the minds of people, Mussolini and Hitler. Well, the, the elites, whether they be on one side of the pond or the other, are all, in my estimation, globalists. They want to destroy the idea of a nation state in favor of a global community. Um, to their own detriment, and I think that perhaps people, the common man, again, going back to it, there is, um, I, I, I shy away from the word innate, but I'll use it anyway, uh, an innate sense that you have to root for a home team, you have to root for a team, and um, you have to go local. You can get 10,000 people filling a stadium rooting for one side or another, and the elites are saying, no, let's all just be joining hands and sing Kumbaya. Why have this rivalry of nation states when the common man are saying, no, I'm a Canadian and I'm not an American, therefore I'm going to root for the home team. And the Americans are saying, I'm an American and I'm not uh, a Russian, so I'll root for my team. And Brexit people or the British are saying that, no, we're different than Germans and French and Italians and, and, and Dutch. So the elite are blind to the things that make us different, even though those things are not you know, you know, essential I, <coughs> to our own character. I think there's something we've learned from our past conversations on this show, and that is that nationalism, however it's perceived and however the EU is perceived, does not disappear just because you have, a, have an EU. It didn't make any of those nationalistic forces go away. You know, you had 70 years of the Soviet Union trying to suppress the nationalism of the Uzbeks, the, the, the Lithuanians, the Estonians, the Ukrainians, and as soon as that hammer, was, that boot was lifted off of their necks, what happens? The nationalism resurrects itself. There, there seemed to be a fundamental need of people to identify with uh, their tribe. Well, it's an interest group, right? Whether it's economic, um, cultural. Linguistic lines religious. as well. So there are many uniting factors among individual peoples, I would say, uh, that might define nation in this regard. Whereas the U European Union is really more of an economic attempt at, what, some for form of free trade? Is that the best you could describe it as? Well, so be it, you know. I mean, here, for instance, let me read you the, what The Economist says in their, in their opening editorial about the new nationalism. 
they write, the architects of what was to become the EU believed that nationalism, which had dragged Europe into two ruinous world wars, would wither and die. What this suggests is not that the elite is blind. It suggests that the elite throughout history is engaged in educating and re-educating the people. The education of the past half century or more in our colleges and universities that then turn out the elite in the society has been to deride nationalism as vulgar, as uh, chauvinistic. The very idea of nationalism when spoken about in Toronto or in New York or in Berlin and Paris of 2015, 2016, is that when the moment you talk about nationalism, you're talking about somebody who's chauvinistic trying to project himself, you know, that he could... is better than the other for whatever reason it might be. That's the education process that is going on. So what happened in this election and in the series of elections that is coming, and, and that's where the tension is, is the idea that how is it that we, after 70 years of educating our people, have ended up finding that that, that that had been, in a sense, a wasted effort. So what is the sociological explanation of that? What is the philosophical explanation of that? I think that's where the rubber hits the road. I, I, I think that nationalism is being largely confused today with things like racism. Yes. With thing, for, for example, just because our skin color is different does not make us different in terms of possible values that we hold and things of that nature or even interests. But that's what happened in Europe during the last World War and in many conflicts in the past. And so that was the identifying point that people saw a nation was based on their race, their culture, their ethnicity, which are not perhaps valid differences in the sense that we look at it today. Yet every nation, despite their racial makeup, does have its own interests. So are these two things being confused entirely? The idea of nation as just a group of, like we can, we're a nation they're, they're, of very many um, ethnic groups. I think it goes back to Hitler. It all goes yeah, back yeah, to yeah. Hitler. <laughs> well, Hitler was a of. national socialist, right? right. Nation. He, he, he talked about race and he identified his nation with a race. And it was that identification since that day that the elite, the left, the globalists are all talking about. That's the one. No, it, it, it precedes Hitler. I mean, Hitler, of course, is uh, your reference is God's own law. You know, every conversation yes. ends up with Hitler. So we have to, we have to put it aside. Bob's, Bob's observation uh, does carry merit in the sense about interest, but everyone has interests. There's nothing without interest, you know. So that's also a, a universal issue. The conflation or the problem is... Good nationalism is civic nationalism, and bad nationalism is nationalism that is based upon some genetic identity that is not transferable, cannot be shared. So, if you are, it's it's the blood and soil nationalism in in the European sense. That is the the German case, which Hitler only. Amplified, but it goes back to the, 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 that you know you're born a German. You you share that's the Vogue 
as opposed to civic nationalism, which is, you know, you come from whatever part of the world you come from, you cohabitate, you go to the same school or similar school, you learn the language, you imbibe the culture, you play the sport, and you become a people, you know. So that was the idea in the French nationalism as opposed to the nationalism of the Germans. That's the idea of the English nationalism. We began, or you alluded to, Gladstone and, and Disraeli. Look, Disraeli was a Jew, or his parents were Jew. They came to England. They wanted to be English, and that's what Disraeli wanted to be. And no other and, nation on earth exemplifies this universality than the United States of America. Precisely. And that's, I think, where everything has gone wrong in the estimate of all of these people who are trying to equate Trump with the bad nationalism. Mm-hmm. Or to say that, you know, and Trump speaks about America first, that's chauvinism, and that's not the case. I think you hit the nail on his head. The American nationalism is, in fact, the exemplification of what, ironically, the economists call the good nationalism, which is civic nationalism. Yes. The whole point of the Corn Laws was to protect the British farmer and landowner, many of whom, of course, were Tory MPs, because by putting a tax on imported wheat or corn, this homegrown product became much more competitive, and that was the trick. But for Peel, this was frankly a denial of the principles of free trade, and he decided that the Corn Laws would simply have to go. Peel knew that many of his own backbenchers would bitterly oppose his plan because, of course, it threatened to reduce their incomes. He thought he could push it through anyway because he had the support of most of his government colleagues, including Gladstone. His calculation could have proved correct, but it didn't, thanks largely to Disraeli. The sheer ferocity of Disraeli's assault on Peel took everyone by surprise. He subjected the Prime Minister's policy to a series of brilliantly argued attacks in the Commons. They had a devastating effect. In the end, Peel did get his way over the Corn Laws, but Disraeli's campaign against him had weakened his authority so much that he resigned as Prime Minister and as leader of the Tory party. Peel's resignation caused a bit of an earthquake because he didn't just resign as Conservative leader, he left the party altogether and he took most of the front bench with him, including William Gladstone and they formed a new group. They were known as the Peelites. Disraeli knew nothing at all about the Treasury or public finances. He wasn't remotely interested in the subject. He made a bizarre choice of revenues he was going to raise, sources of taxation, and actually targeted uh, the poor, the poorer householders, sections of the urban middle class, uh, who were quite essential to the Conservative Party. And he was destroyed, his budget was finally polished off, by a brilliant speech by a man called Gladstone. Gladstone was a very happy man. A few days after his budget triumph, he was here at the Carlton Club, relaxing in the newspaper room, reflecting on how well things had gone, no doubt congratulating himself on his big achievement, when suddenly he had a very nasty confrontation. 
Without warning, the door burst open and a group of Tory MPs came rushing in. They'd heard that Gladstone was in the building and they wanted to teach him a lesson. And they pushed him around and jostled him a bit. They even tried to throw him out of the window onto the street below. Well, he just about got away unharmed. But as you can imagine, he was pretty shaken. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived for your listening enjoyment. You know, the way I see it, Bob and Salim, is that you don't have to get rid of the nation-state or nationalism because there is a, a need of the people, uh, not necessarily for nation-states, but for patriotism. And I think that that's what I was referring to at the beginning of the show when I talked about this need for people to root for the home team. They're being patriotic, not nationalistic, which I think there are two different terms. And I think everybody is, is somewhat patriotic. Everybody roots for the home team. Everybody's proud of where they're from. Which doesn't mean you hate the other guy. Yeah, it doesn't, yes, <laughs> right. it doesn't mean that we have to go to war, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even metaphorically speaking. <laughs> You're right, uh, Robert. And, and what patriotism means is that you, there is a sense of attachment. Mm-hmm. A child is born to a family, so the first sense of attachment, even as a child will grow up and will discover his individuality, but his attachment, his first attachment is to his family, his parents and the larger context. The, the most proximate family in the largest sense, and yet most proximate, is the nation, is the people. And, and your words remind me of Sir Walter Scott, the, the great Scottish poet, English poet, you know, from uh, the 18th century, late 18th, early 19th century. And his poem, Lines from the Lay of Lost Minstrel, they're so beautiful line. And if I remember a few opening lines, it goes like this. Breathes there a man with soul so dead, who never to himself hath said, this is my own, my native land. And if there is such a man, go mark him well, you know. The wretch concentrated all in self, living shall forfeit fair renown, and doubly dying shall go down to the vile dust from which he sprung, unwept, unhonored, and unsung. So this patriotism is the love for the land, that is love for the people, you know, the Scots, the English, the French Canadian, the Canadian. And to disparage this love, the sense of attachment, is to take away a part of who you are. And the fact that, you know, for the longest while in our lifetime, all of all three of us belong to the same or similar generation, and we have all grown up with the idea that nationalism is something one has to be cautious about. One has to look at it, you know, in a way with suspicion because it raises all these other bogeyman ideas, Hitler, Mussolini, you know. It raises the specter of collectivism. I mean, on this show, we are all individualists, and we always have to remind our listeners that when we're talking about right ideas, we're talking about individualism. And 
to be part of a, a, a you know a nation state or a, a patriotic you know to be patriotic or to belong to a group or a collective doesn't necessarily mean that you're saying that you're better than anybody else doesn't mean that uh, you can't say that oh this collective this group this nation is wrong soviet union was an evil empire but that doesn't mean that you, you, you're not proud no, of the fact that you're mean, Russian. No, it doesn't mean. But, you know, again, overemphasis of individualism then becomes paradoxically the opposite because there is no I without the we, as I said. That's correct. Individualism know. exists within the society Precisely. that embraces so it. Nation, if you didn't have that, you couldn't right. be an individualist. And, and so nation <laughs> is that, as I, as I repeat myself, is the most proximate family. And so when, when Trump, or Reagan appeals to American nationalism, they're not appealing to, quote, unquote, the wide, blonde, blue-eyed, which is what would be the Aryan nationalism of the German under Hitler. It is America, the idea of America, which embraces people whatever direction they come from. We are American. American is not an ethnicity. Yes. Americanism is an idea based upon, that's where it comes, the Republican democracy, we the people, based upon an idea that, you know, was enunciated at the opening of the revolution by the founding fathers. You know, we believe in these things, these articles, you know, what was the founding document, the Declaration of Independence, that we are all created equal. You know, and we all have the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness worked out within the document that is the Constitution. By the way, the second American Revolution was the emancipation of the slave. And the emancipation of the slave was within the constitutional framework because so long the slaves existed in America was half slave and half free, the Constitution itself was not fulfilled. Gee, I'm glad you said that when you before I said what I was about to say. And that is that the idea of the nation-state scares a lot of people because, let's face it, who goes to war? Nations. Nations go to war against each other, but you just brought up a very good exception. The worst wars are within nations, mm -hmm. and so that rule doesn't even hold solid all the time. So you think that that is what it lies at, at everyone's you know, fear of the idea of quote-unquote nationalism? Yeah, I think the fear uh, in, in, in the context of where we are, 2016, going forward into 2017, the fear is, I think, what you, Robert, mentioned a little while ago. That is, the rise of uh, this sense of who we are as a people, French, German, in this case, American, is a, in some ways a negation of the idea of the elite of one world government that would be done through, again, agencies that transcended the boundaries of nation-state, the United Nations, the Davos summit, the Davos elite, you know, going to this uh, alpine village, you know, in Switzerland, the Bill Gates, the, the Jeff Bezos, and on and on, uh, collecting together and setting the agenda for all of us, the rest of us, who are the plebeians, you know, who are the common men, who don't understand the highly intricate economics and finances in which the world is working. And what the Brexit meant was we reject that. No, we have a thousand-year history, and our laws have been made at Westminster by people like Gladstone, 
and Disraeli and Churchill. And we don't want our laws to be made somewhere in Brussels. You know, that's funny that you say that because I can envision thousands of years, perhaps in the future, where a world government may be a good idea as long as that that government protects individual rights. And that's why it is instituted. I cannot see a world government based on the model of a Saudi Arabia. I can't see a world government based on the model of a a Germany or a a Soviet Union or a Japan. I can see it based on uh, the laws of the United States. I would contend even with the laws of the United States. Well, that's that's the Obama project. That's the Al Gore project. That's the climate change project. Even with Americans who have worked towards the idea of world government, I would argue and say that that would be contrary to the very principle that you espouse about individualism because that is based upon the whole notion of limited government, the government that is most proximate to the individual. A world government would be the most distant from the individual. So Brussels is most distant from London, from Manchester, from... Well, I'm not suggesting that the people in Brussels tell us how to pick up our garbage. (laughs) No, but that's that's the idea. Take the case of the climate change issue, you see. Uh, Whenever you push these people who have become the members of the Church of Climate Change, they're talking about 50 years (laughs) down the road, we might know the effect of our CO2 emission, Uh, but we have to pay for the cost of it now. And the damage that is being done to the jobs now has not been paid any attention to by the Davos elite who is pushing the climate change. The Trump election, the people who voted for the Trump people, they're the ones who are the most skeptics about climate change because they see just the opposite. As you and I, we are sitting here talking today in December, middle of December, it's becoming one of the coldest winters. There is a freeze going on across the United States. Yes, but that's and just yet, weather. It's not climate. So Exactly. <laughs> it's weather. It is it's a freeze going on. And what we are saying, I mean, the common people, oh, we could do a little more with a little more uh, CO2 effect. <laughs> we could have a little more greenhouse and so on and so forth. So there is a disparity or a disconnect between the world government agenda of the elite and those who prefer the nation state. Bernard? Uh, yes, Prime Minister. Where exactly is George's Island? Um. <laughs> Shall we look at the globe? There's one in the private office. Good idea. Hey, good afternoon, Luke. Good afternoon, Prime Minister. Now, uh, where is it? Uh. Uh. <laughs> well, it's here in the Arabian Sea. Right near the Persian Gulf? Yes, the lifeline of the West. And look, there's Afghanistan, which is now under Soviet control. That's only 400 miles north of the Arabian Sea. If the Soviets ever took Pakistan... Which they wouldn't. Well, if they did, they would control (laughs) the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Sea, and the Indian Ocean. And the Soviets have always wanted what they call a warm water port. But there's no risk. They wouldn't invade Pakistan. Anyway, the Americans have a fleet permanently stationed here. The Indian Ocean. Uh, Prime Minister, may I have a word with you about uh, home affairs? Home affairs? Yes. Couldn't wait. We're discussing foreign affairs. Uh, No, Prime Minister, it's rather urgent. (laughs) Yes, Prime Minister, please. Very well. Excuse me.
that about? Well, I don't want to be disloyal or anything. I didn't think it was an awfully good idea to continue that conversation in front of Luke. Luke? What? Security. But he's your colleague. He's one of my private secretaries. What on earth is MI6 up to allowing well, Prime Minister, he's not that sort of security risk. It's just that he, he works for the Foreign Office. He works for me. Uh, yes, but he's, <laughs> he's not only your man from the Foreign Office, he's also their man in number 10. He's a plant. <laughs> oh. Ah. Oh. Uh, do you understand? Yes. No. <laughs> Are you telling me the Foreign Office is keeping something from me? Yes. Well, what? I don't know. <laughs> They're keeping it from me, too. Well, how do you know? I don't know. You just said that the Foreign Office was keeping something from me. How do you know if you don't know? Well, I don't know specifically what, Prime Minister, but I do know the Foreign Office always keep everything from everybody. It's normal practice. <laughs> who does know? Um, may I just clarify the question? You are asking who would know what it is that I don't know and you don't know, but the Foreign Office know that they know, <laughs> that they are keeping from you so that you don't know, but they do know, and all we know, there is something we don't know and we want to know, but we don't know what because we don't know. <laughs> is that it? May I clarify the question? <laughs> Who knows Foreign Office secrets apart from the Foreign Office? Oh, that's easy. Only the Kremlin. <laughs> Earlier in the show, uh, you were talking, Salim, about theatre and how politics is theatre. Where's the, where's the theatre in uh, nationalism? Well, nationalism uh, and democracy together is theatre. A, a leader has to connect with the common man, the connecting with the common man, a common every man, is nationalism. There's appeal to the people. Nation is the people. Appeal to the people. Connecting with the people. And that's where theater comes in. Uh, a, a leader that cannot connect through his skills as an orator, through his capacity to move the people, to understand what the people aspire to or what the people's need are, in bad times and in good times, you know, especially in bad times, but also in good times, then that leader cannot be the leader. He cannot get elected because there is something magical that is happening. You go back to any of these great moments in democratic politics, which throws up great leaders. You know, in in in, in Canada, you know, you have Jean Chrétien, the small uh, man from the little man from Schwinnigan, yes. The little man, yeah. Uh, you you have Brian Mulroney, another guy from. Uh, when Irish eyes are smiling, that was pure theater. That was pure. <laughs> you know, as, as much as I never liked liberal politics, I always loved listening to John Cretchen. He was so entertaining. That's true. A and That's true. I would go out of my way to watch him on cable cast if I saw him giving yes. a speech to so some small group, and and it was just enthralling just to watch the man yes. and he had the place in the palm of his hands That's every right. time and Pierre Trudeau I mean Pierre Trudeau despite whatever we might talk about his uh, uh, negative fuddle, consequences <laughs> on Kevin Paul which all of us share but when it came to theater his appeal went over the heads of the people and his opposition were so drab and dreary. Robert Stanfield, think about him. Yeah, can't think about him. <laughs> <laughs> or, or David Luke. And so they're back. You come back to in American politics and British politics, Gladstone and Disraeli that you began with, great orators, great drama. And they spared nothing against each other. They went for the juggler. You know, one of the most memorable lines of, of Disraeli talking about 
Gladstone, I think it was in the House of Commons, where uh, Disraeli stands up and says, you know, what's the difference between misfortune and catastrophe? It would be a misfortune if Mr. Gladstone fell in the Thames, but it would be a catastrophe if somebody went in and pulled him out. <laughs> so, so it was a no hole, no no holes barred, or no how, however you phrase it. They went for the juggler, and and they relished it. I think the problem is with the the intellectual class and the people that we began with, and the people I was talking, the Bay Street financiers, the Wall Street economists, and so on, so forth, the academics is that they see the theater aspect turning into demagoguery. And it is true, there's a very razor edge between theater in public space and demagoguery. I mean, demagogues happen. I uh, guess that depends on who the speaker is, whether he's a demagogue or whether he's a true democrat in the, in the, precisely, in the real sense of the word. Uh, precisely. And, and, and that's we have to be alert, and that's what we have to call out. I mean, uh, we have had in, in, in Canadian politics demagogues. I think Lucien Bouchard became a sort of a demagogue. Remember running into mm-hmm. the 1995 uh, referendum? Well, when they broke away from the Conservative Party. When they broke away the from the yeah. yeah, that's right. There are demagogues have been there in American politics, people like George Wallace. And, of course, there have been a whole lot of demagogues like Al Sharpton's and Jesse Jackson's. Well, how do you explain somebody like a Stephen Harper? I mean, he did not in any way, shape, or form, I think, identified with the common man. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't an elitist. There's no doubt about that. He was a sort of a common man himself, but he didn't identify. He, he didn't have the oratory skills. He didn't have the personality. Was it just a, um, a, a station-keeping position that he was there because he was against somebody like uh, Michael Ignatieff, a Harvard elitist, comes by and people go, no, nope, you don't, don't, don't identify with you, so I think I'll stick with Stephen Harper. Until somebody more flamboyant comes along, like uh, D'Artagnan, Justin Trudeau. Well, well, that's what happened. Justin Trudeau uh, blew Stephen Harper away with theatrics. Remember the debates that happened. Yes. I think that we can look back upon the Harper decade. I think one of the Achilles heel of Harper was that he lacked any sense of drama. Politics was him for him was too much of an intellectual affair, you know. He spent too much time with economics rather with you yeah, know what, what moves moves the common people. Balancing the book became his issue. Yes, we all want the books to be balanced, but we also want to have a sense of what is our destiny, what is our sense of where we are heading. We need drama. Together we need drama. And Stephen had no sense of drama. It it strikes me that if you were to ask the average man out in the street there about nationalism and what they related to as nationalism, I don't think they'd be thinking, well, I have my individual rights, I have this, I have that. What they might be thinking about is their food, their custom, their clothing, the whatever ethnic things. That it comes back almost to ethnicity to a large degree in the average person's mind. And yet that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about nationalism here. But we're also living in the world after 9-11, and Stephen Harper came into Canadian politics. That means he was elected as a minority government in 2006. Remember, it was Toronto 18. And he left uh, in 2015, and the issue was, again, the question of what is the sort of dress, the women covering, and so on and so forth. But Stephen did not talk about 
the radical Islamic violence, which is exactly what the Democratic politician in America, the Obama or his predecessor, the Republican politician, George Bush, wouldn't want to talk about. And Trump did. Trump boldly talked about radical Islamic terrorism. And that made sense to a lot of people because Americans have felt under siege. Americans have felt threatened. There have been terrorist activity going on in, in America as in Europe. And that's, I think, another issue that The Economist magazine and the others don't want to talk about it, that open immigration is in some ways hollowing out the sense of who we are, the sense of, you know, we are bringing in people we are accommodating people in our midst who do not want to share our values, our family values, our civic nationalism. This is not a uh, blood and soil nationalism. This is our civic nationalism. That is the respect for individual, the respect for individual rights. But they don't want to. They have their Sharia code. They want to treat women differently or the women want to behave differently than what we in North America, uh, women do, you know. So when Trump talked about these issues, the people connected and the Hillary Clinton and the Obamas, the people rejected. And this is again what happened in Brexit. People understood that open immigration was, in a sense, hollowing out Britain. It is not that you expect the immigrant to arrive and immediately start reciting Shakespeare to be or not to be, but to be willing to embrace Shakespeare, to be willing to embrace the icons of English history. But these newcomers want to repudiate it, and our world government people want to embrace them and say to the others that somehow you are being bigoted because you don't respect their identity. So Enoch Powell was a little before his time, and we didn't, we didn't have rivers of blood when the Jamaicans came into Britain, but we are having rivers of blood with um, the new immigrants into Britain, for sure. Right, and the river... Uh, Quite literally. And the, Precisely, but, but the irony is, again, this is a matter of education, we talked about it, that when Enoch Powell speaking about the River of Blood and the Jamaicans were coming in, those Jamaicans, though they were brown in color, though they were black in color, they wanted to be part of Mother England. They yes. spoke English, they played cricket, they played it's soccer, awesome. they went into theater, they loved it. But then their children and grandchildren, ironically, are identifying with Black Lives Matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and again, that goes back to education, you see? That is, that their grandparents was accepted, but somehow the grandchildren feel that they're being ignored, that they want to reject America, or they want to reject England, and they want to reject France. That's the case in France. The great immigration into France since the 1960s has been from North Africa which was part of the French Empire. And these new immigrants do not want to embrace France. Well, Salim, our time has run out again, as amazing as, and quick as it always does. I guess we'll have to leave it there, and thank you for joining us once again, and we will invite our listeners to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right, and be right back here. hope I will be. <laughs> Take care. We'll see you next week. Thank you. To color, color into black and white under the bed.
We can get to Bonicelli. How are you going to do that? Work on his weaknesses. Italians are very sentimental. Yeah, they love music. Uh, anybody know the words to Santa Lucia? <laughs> Food is the clincher. LeBeau, how are you on pizza? Pizza? You would ask a Frenchman to cook a piece of cardboard with tomato sauce? We swear not to tell anybody. Ask me to dig a tunnel? Yes. To climb a barbed wire? Yes. But to make a pizza? No. We all have to make sacrifices. 